0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, man breaks teeth biting into pizza, which lights up, levitates, spins madly about, and flies away at inertialess acceleration. Man orders another without mushrooms this time. E-Arcs of Greatness, and Spots of Gore, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we would be extremely grateful if you would take a bit of time and go over to iTunes or wherever you get the podcast and give the Bain Free Radio Hour a five-star rating. And please email us with any questions or comments at podcast at Bane.com. Thank you very much. Just want to remind you that we're doing the podcast in both video and audio version now. The video version is available at iTunes and also on the podcast webpage, and also there is a Bain YouTube channel where all the podcasts have been archived, so you can check that out as well. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman, who discusses his new novel in the Carrera series, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. This is a culminating volume in this long-running series, which brings to the climax, the invasion of Carreras Balboa on the planet Terra Nova, by the venal and corrupt Taran Union and its allies, including Earth Peace Fleet Admiral Wallenstein. It's a great read, and Tom Kratman will give us the scoop on the novel. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising honor. Now, here's the news. Hey, take advantage of this while it lasts for the rest of August. Get discounts on all Larry Korea's Monster Hunter International series ebooks. Save over 28% on Monster Hunter Siege and Monster Hunter Guardian, the two newest books in the series. That's a savings of $2 per ebook. Plus, all the other Monster Hunter ebooks in the Monster Hunter International series are $1 off, all of them. These discounts will be available wherever Bane ebooks are distributed. But the sale ends at the stroke of midnight before September 1st, so stock up while the getting's good. Hey, the August EARCs have boldly burst forth from the forges of creation. Now, an earch is the path a Perseid meteor that's going to make Earth fall takes towards someone's house who has spilled the salt and failed to throw a pinch over his left shoulder, opened an umbrella in his living room and crossed the path of a black cat and worst of all, put a hat on a bed and left it there. No, wait, wait, wait. That's that's not what an e is at all. An e is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. We put these out three or four months before a book is coming out in print and an ebook form for those who can't wait to get the next book in a series or try out a great Bane author. These are the electronic versions of the galleys that we send to authors. So they may have a few typos, but hey, they are the most absolute piping hot version in which you can read a Bain book. So first for August in eArc form is 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, Battle for the New World. It's 1637 in the Caribbean, Uptimer from 20th century America, commander Eddie Cantrell and his ally and friend, Admiral Martin Tromp, start the year with some nasty surprises for Spain, whose centuries long exploitation and rapine of the new world has run unchecked. But Imperial Spain is determined to possess the new black gold of the Americas in the form of crude oil pouring out of the allies' pumps on Trinidad. Now the battle for the new world has begun and it's a fight to the finish. Also in the art format is Serpent Daughter by DJ Butler. Long live the queen of Cahokia. Sarah Calhoun has taken her father's throne and ascended into her goddess's presence in unfallen Eden as her father never did. That's Cahokia. But the queen may be dying Forces are allied against her from without as well as from within. To survive, Sarah must enact an ancient rite that will propel her beyond mortality and lend her strength to fight. The queen may be dying, true, but if she is, she will go down fighting for the only thing that matters. Finally out in New York is Agent of the Imperium by Mark Miller, an epic novel set in the Traveler game universe. Jonathan Bland is a decider. In the services of the Empire, he has killed more people than anyone in the history of humanity, but to save a hundred times as many. He died centuries ago, but the Imperium reactivates his recorded personality whenever a new threat appears. We follow Bland through places of legendary glory and massive conflict. For him, it is the battle for personal meaning in a life engineered for perpetual war and conflict an epic novel in the Traveler universe. Agent of the Imperium e by Mark Miller, Serpent Daughter e by D.J. Butler, and the e of 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon are available exclusively at Bane.com, so check them out. This is part two of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman, Part one is available on last week's podcast. Wanna well, welcome Tom Kratman back to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tony. Give it a little background. Tom Kratman grew up in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Reading military history, he joined the army and stayed a regular army infantryman most of his life, his adult life returning. Although we don't know that for sure. You could, um, and you went back to college. Did you, um, did you enlist and then go back to college? Is that how it worked or?
2: I, um, my high school was kind of a strange place. I understand it's decayed quite a bit, but at the time, Boston Latin was about 12th in the country to include the high-end um, schools like Groton and Grafton and the two Phillips. And um, it was a public school, but it was a, a test in school. You had to test in. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, that year my scores were the highest, so I'm told. Um, and it was just, just a bitch. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we usually had at least one teen suicide in any given year. Uh, the workload was immense. Summer vacations didn't exist. For summer vacation, you got a huge reading list to get done before you got back to school. Um, 635 years old at the time. It's, uh, about 385 years old now. Yeah. 385, I think. And, um, at the end of my junior year, I was just sick of it. I didn't want to do that shit anymore. So I enlisted in the army. Uh. And, uh, Spent four years in, got a couple of years of college, knocked off while I was in. And then the Army gave me a scholarship, sent me back to Boston College, and I took ROTC and got commissioned a couple of years later.
1: And you were, I mean, you were in as an officer for many years and you you um, were, uh, then you, you retired a Lieutenant Colonel, I guess. Was right. that during, was that the regular stint before you became a lawyer? or
2: no um a- after the first gulf war i just didn't see a lot of future and violently and militantly aggressive anti-communism anymore you know they were over pretty much
1: the so-called so the end country. of history yeah <laughs> it well go. it didn't
2: quite work out that way of course yeah. but uh since i've been back a couple of times since then um so i got out and went to law school and then i practiced law for a while really hated it uh, the, the study uh, much more, someone much more famous man than, than I, and I don't remember his name, once said that um, the study of law was sublime, but the practice is sordid, and that's pretty much correct. I, I kind of enjoyed the study of it, kind of, uh, even if I didn't really like law school, um, but practic- practicing it was kind of miserable. Some people like it, the poor soulless bastards, but I did
1: <laughs> Well, uh we won't go into all that you did, but you did a whole lot of stuff uh, um, being, a, a, you went back in and, and were a lawyer as well in the, law, in the Army, right? Um,
2: not exactly. Um, the last, my terminal tour was at the War College, and I had a law degree by then, and I was sort of in-house counsel to the Peacekeeping Institute, which was not perhaps the best possible match. Um, but no, for the Army, I was an instrument uh, almost entirely.
1: Well, after, uh, after all of this, uh, you, uh, started writing, um, you probably wrote before, but, but our first book at Bain was a state of disobedience and, uh, Caliphate and the series consisting of a desert called peace, uh, carnifex, the Lotus eaters, the Amazon Legion, come and take them the rods and the ax pillar of fire by night. And, um, this is the Carrera series and the anthology, uh, Terra Nova, which is, um, is out, um, in uh, mass market, Yeah. and or is it coming out? Uh, I think
2: I believe it is out about uh, two months ago, maybe.
1: Yeah, actually, yes. We would have brought it out before. Silver Fire. In fact, it's sitting up there on my on my mass market uh, shelf. Um, you, you wrote some novels for John Ringo and found that you didn't really like to co-author that much as I recall. Uh, watch on the Ryan Yellow Eyes and the Tuloriad. Um, uh, they're, they're, not,
2: they're not really co-authored at all. You can ask. John said it in public several times. It was supposed to be Tom Prattman writing in John Ringo's puzzling universe, but Jim Bain for marketing reasons didn't do it that way. And he didn't tell either of us either. So um, yeah, they're not, they're not written to an outline. It's just John letting me play in his universe.
1: Yeah. well, that's cool. I mean, that's a that's a you know a, a time honored uh, publishing sharecropping uh, uh, co-authoring move <laughs> that Jim Bain did. Um, yeah, in fact,
2: uh, editing putting an anthology together was an experiment on my part to see if I could work with other people in an other than military. And I wasn't really great about it necessarily in a military environment, but um, in a civilian environment, I had my doubts. It worked out reasonably well and we'll probably get into what i'm doing with that recently discovered ability yeah uh,
1: along. Which, which by which you mean terra nova which was the um the first of of these an- anthologies that are set in your world the carrera universe um you also have that three book uh military um adventure series called the countdown series which are really great books um uh, and they're all you know still for sale of course yeah, now they're, it they're books worth- Go ahead. Nobody
2: knew where to stack them at Barnes and Noble. I I went into probably a dozen different Barnes and Nobles, and I found them under science fiction because of Bane, under general fiction, uh, they, they were anywhere, because they didn't fit, I guess, what the minions in Barnes and Noble really, understood.
1: Yeah, so. well, it's hard to it, it's hard to make a decision when you're doing the uh, bisac bisac uh, classification system to um, because you want your readers who uh, mostly think of you now as a science fiction reader to be able to find these books um, at the same time the readers who would be reading them in uh, general fiction should also be able to find them. so um, it may not be the it may not be the kid's fault that stocked the shelves more than uh, just trying to figure out how to classify things it's it's crazy, yeah, I, book I selling. It's getting crazier. I, I
2: didn't leave a trail of bodies behind me when I looked. I just thought it was kind <laughs> of odd and funny.
1: Well, I don't know, but now uh, there is science fiction out from you now at booksellers everywhere. Is this great book, which is uh, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman, and this is a this is a big culminating book in the um, cu- plot, culminating book in the um, in the Carrera series. yeah so all right so um how are i mean we've been playing around and hinting at the fact that there are a lot of earth analogies in the uh, geography and the, the how much of this is um because i know i'll say well this is the analog of this and that and then you'll pull the rug out from under me if i if i go too far in that direction you'll like, say no actually so h- how are we supposed to take this um i you're not really writing satire or um a uh, an alternate future uh disguised here this is, this is science fiction at the same time there's a lot of analogies to earth
2: um, well, it's, yeah it's a cleft. there's about seven or eight different ways to read this the series okay one of them is straight science fiction another one is a Romana cleft, where i'm i mean is when the Secretary of Defense of the Federated States is named Ron Campos, which translates, interestingly enough, as Rumsfield.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've spent a lot of time in Panama.
2: Yeah. I just spent about... And married well, a
1: Panamanian.
2: Yeah. Uh, beautiful Panamanian, actually. Yeah. No, um, well, you've met her. Mm-hmm.
1: Very uh, much a beautiful Panamanian, yes.
2: Yeah, that... Uh, you can read it as a Romana clip. Reme- you can read them as a series of how-to essays. Um, for, any, for someone who, one of my major ambitions in writing it was to make it a one-stop shop when the series was done in Art of War. If somebody wants to read about war, they can go there and they'll get a fairly decent education in it. You know, ranging from how to organize. There's a, Remember the, es- the essay I did on that?
1: yeah we have it's what is it principles uh, of principles
2: of organization for war and organizing for war in the I think.
1: which is available as an ebook at bain Books. So. yes
2: um you know amazon legion how to use women how to make turn women into combat combatants which is to say don't do anything the united states or anybody in the west is doing because it's not going to work
1: um i've always thought fu- you had a great uh, idea there but <laughs> That seems to be the best way to, to, anyway, but let's not go off. Oh, it's the
2: only way. Uh, I, I think it could be done my way and no other. Yeah, maybe I'm a little arrogant about that, but no, nah, my way and no other. Um, you know, how to use artillery. There's a lot of how to use artillery. in me. I'm not an artilleryman, but I spend a lot of time in mortars too, which is similar in principle. Um, you know, there's a lot on training in there. Uh, there's a lot in administration, you know, how to set up an award system. Um, there's a lot on how to organize and develop a leadership core. Uh, tactics, eh, you know, everybody's got tactics. There's, there's a fair amount of that, of that in there. But, you know, again, heavy on the training and selection, which is part of training. And I did an essay on that for it, too.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the things that I like about the book so much is that, I mean, you get all this, you know, running around doing stuff in a lot of military uh, fiction, science fiction, you really portray what bombardment and just the grind of the whole thing is in a way that's really effective, I think. Um,
2: It's historically accurate. Um, During the, uh, the, the German offensives in the late part of the great war, like 1918, uh, under Georg Brookmiller, Miller, um, Russian bombardments in uh, on the Eastern Front in World War Two, um, and carpet bombings by us and the Brits in the West. You can reasonably expect about two percent of the soldiers under bombardment to blow their own brains out. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a consistent enough pattern that yeah, if you give them that kind of bombardment. 2% of them will kill themselves and the rest are going to be cat- you know, catatonic nervous wrecks.
1: Well, there's a, I mean, Carrera does that to a, uh, surrounded, is it a Tauran unit that, uh. The one trying. in the beginning, the 57th Anglian? Yes, I think, yeah.
2: Diehard 57th? <laughs>
1: where the, they basically, he goes in and, and says, well, you guys want to surrender? And they say, please, or something like that.
2: No, they don't. They, they don't want to surrender. Ah, ah. They they do not want to surrender. Um, and the reason why is their commander, who's dead, had brought their actual colors, which go back 500 years. And they'd rather die than give up those colors to an enemy. And prayer says, we're not going to take your colors. No, we don't do that not our way you know demeaning you demeans us uh no 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 you'll march out with a, a bullet in each cheek with your flags flying and your bayonets fixed and then you turn in the rifles and you go to a prison camp but we're not going to shame you
1: right yeah it It was but they they were they were at their wits end <laughs>
2: yeah they were even the sergeant major was twitching from the bombardment
1: you know. yeah, yeah well that was that was cool um the uh How did the Zong get pulled in and how are they, how's Creary sort of messing with them? Well, their Navy is, had a blow.
2: Most of that was in um, the rods and the ax, I think. Yeah. And uh, come and take them before that. Basically they got pulled in. uh, They had one of their aircraft carriers trying to evacuate their civilians from Balboa when the Torin Union was first attacking. Um, and one of Carrera's submarines spotted it, which wasn't a very hard thing to do. Um, and uh, not knowing that it was engaged in a because it was out of karma. The, uh, the submarine skipper torpedoed it and killed, we don't know how many thousands of Zhong civilians. And that set things up for the Zhong uh, to go into the war. Um, Wallenstein that's how she gets hooked up with the empress is trying to find a an ally for the Tory union which is kind of limperistic if you don't mind the analogy um kind of weak um in some ways they're more muscular than the uh, the eu on earth is though they've, they've got more troops than than, earth, than the european union does and they're more willing to use them but they're still kind of weak And uh, Carrera also wants them to come in because he doesn't want the TU to break off the war. He has to fight his war and have it done with it a certain amount of time because he's got a citizen soldier, relatively well-trained and unusually well-led citizen soldier militia army. He can't keep them mobilized technically. He needs the war to be fought and won or lost, whichever, you know, whichever, um, before he runs out of money and supplies. So he wants the touring union to go in, um, to come in. And so he arranges for his uh, stealthy subs to knock off a couple of uh, Zhong subs, as I recall. And that's provocation to stop any possibility of the Zong not coming in the war. One of them is named for, not for the empress, but for a previous Chinese empress that the this empress uh, took a great personal interest in. So that, that's how these young are forced into war, even though it's not all, all, all that much in their interest.
1: So a lot of this is, is Wallenstein, uh, Wallenstein trying to, to, to stir the pot and, uh, basically, uh, keep somebody like Carrera from, from taking, uh, the, the fight back. And before she's ready to, to make her move on earth. Um, what is there's good guys in a way on the Tarn Union side, like Claudio? Uh, what's his name? Marci, I can't uh. Marciano.
2: Yeah, he's um, he's a real person. That's not his name, but he's a real person. Uh, he's an old friend of mine, um, former Alpini general. Uh, I'm not going to say what he's doing now, even though I know what it is, and um, one of a relatively few general handful of generals that I actually think well of. Uh, good soldier good officer stefano de Callea is another and indeed in real life they had a, a very similar relationship to the one in the book
1: yeah and so i mean but these guys are they realize that they're perhaps not fighting for the good guys but they're they're they have honor and they're going to fight and they're they're good opponents for carrera because otherwise he's he's a little too uh he's too good of a soldier for some of these idiots on the other side and they give him a fight
2: oh yeah particularly in um particularly in santa josefina um marciano i, I mentioned it in the book actually in a, in a letter carrera saying, saying that uh history is not going to be kind to him and it's totally unfair because he did as good a job in santa josefina given what he had to work with um, as anyone could be expected to
1: the that's, ultimate, the, that's the neighboring country to Balboa, right? And why is it in the war and what's its relationship to?
2: They started off really being being an excuse. Um, the Torrin Union insists that Carrera and Balboa disarm because of the threat they pose to totally demilitarize Santa Josefina. Um, Carrera is, of course, not going to do that. And he says something that's absolutely, in defense against disarming, he says something that's absolutely bullshit, which is that he doesn't have the logistic wherewithal to invade Santa Josefina. So there's no threat. Yes, he does. (laughs) He absolutely has the wherewithal to do it. Um, And in fact, he does do it in a different way. So they're going to use Santa Josefina as um, as a base for the war against Balboa, Carrera's country. And um, to secure that base, they send in some troops, but it's, it's just enough to give Carrera an excuse and not enough to actually defend the country. He's got, his, his legions are full of um, Santa Josefinans who have crossed the border and enlisted. Enough, enough for him to make two pure regiments of Santa Josefinans um, to send across the border to operate as guerrillas. And part of my objective there was to um, really to crap upon various uh, pro-guerrilla and pro-terrorist Westerners. Uh, Because he manufactures that war out of whole cloth. There doesn't really have to be a war. Even if it's a base, it's not a very effective base against him. But. but he, he wants to run them out of it anyway. He, eventually he wants, it, it's not obvious, but eventually he knows he's gonna lose enough people that he needs Santa Josefina as um, an ally and maybe to have an Anschluss with Balboa to increase its population to the, you know, for self-defense in the future. Uh, and you know, the, the fortunes of war sort of wax and wane with um, how much support Marciano gets, how many troops are sent to, like he'll, he gets a package I think of six battalions of gendarmerie, which are a gendarmerie are great to use for counterinsurgency, and he uses them, but then they get pulled out again, you know, so he's, he's, he's advancing the two regiments, two tercios of Santa Josefinans out working for Carrera come in, he's retreating, you know, he gets some reinforcements, he's able to advance again, they get pulled out, he has to retreat again, and the whole time that he's having to concentrate on the, the regular Santa Josefinan regiments a guerrilla movement is rising in his rear. And he can't it's a problem we had in Vietnam really is it's very hard to fight a conventional war on the perimeter and a guerrilla war in the interior. It's just it's not like the Brits in Malaya who just had a guerrilla problem. In Vietnam we had a a guerrilla and a conventional problem. And it that's part a good deal of why we lost. It was just too hard.
1: So um I guess we could, I could ask you further what you mean about crap on the, uh, the, the, the guerrilla theorist and such. Um,
2: oh, well, you've got someone who's pretty right-wing. He's not actually a fascist, but he, he does manipulate emotions to some extent, like a fascist. Um, and he has a propaganda ministry to do it for him. You've got someone like Carrera doing exactly the kinds of things that left-wing guerrillas have been doing for 70 years now, 72 years now. No, I'm sorry, Greece, 74 years now, right? He's doing exactly what they're doing, but he's not a lefty. So if you approve of what the lefties are doing, but you don't approve of what he is doing, then you have no principle. It's all tactical for you. He's demonstrating in in the war in Santa Josefina, that there's no principle to the left supporting guerrilla movements around the world the last three generations.
1: I see, I see. So the um, all right. So uh, bringing it down a little bit from uh, from from that uh, broader perspective. Um, we can't really talk about Hamilcars. cars. Uh, there is a, a really fun sub thread in the book that I enjoyed, which was, um, this run across the war zone by Khalid, uh, or, or the aftermath zone. Um, and, uh, Alex Fiedel who Spital, who is, um,
2: she's basically she, a real person too.
1: Who is she again? She's,
2: she's a legislator. She? Um, she's a lesbian. Or, well, as it turns out, she's not doctrinaire about it, but um, but she's largely a lesbian. She's right-wing. She's hated.
1: Who is, uh, she, is she Tauron Union, or who does she work
2: she's for? Union. She's Tauron Union. She's a legislator in Saxon, a country in, in the Tauron Union. Okay.
1: And, and Khalid goes
2: and, to investigate after the Muslim rebellion and the TU breaks out. You know, Khalid works
1: for Carrera, ultimately. He works for Carrera's spy master, right?
2: Yeah, he, wor- he works for Fernandez. Khalid's a Druze. Um, the Druze are an odd folk and, and they're pretty noble, really. Um, they're loyal to their homeland. So patriotism is a Druze value wherever they live. And I, I wonder what happens when a, an Israeli, if an Israeli Druze battalion, and there was one, ever goes up against Syrian Druze. You know, probably they fight, each fights as well as they can. Uh, but in any case, in Israel, for example, the Druze, um, when Israel was first forming, uh, Druze elders went to, uh, I think, Ben Gurion and said, no, 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 we want our young men to be drafted too. This is our country now as well. And so unlike most, uh, the Druze are drafted in Israel and they've had, they're about about one in 60 Israelis as is a Druze, high percent, 1.6%. You know, it's, it's not trivial. And they've had about uh, 370 or so killed in action, which I think is more than their fair share uh, since the founding of Israel has probably been about 13,000 killed in action. So, you know, The Druze, they pay pay their dues for their citizenship. Khalid is a Druze, he's loyal to Balboa and the legions. He was recruited in Sumer during the war there um, after his, uh, I think his mother and father and little sister were killed by a bomb. And he helps with the war there uh, in a lot of ways. Then he becomes an assassin and uh, Fernandez has him offing various members of the family of the Mustafa, the chief terrorists, that Carrera is, is his ultimate opponent, whom he has the se- sex changed of before crucifying it. Um, <laughs> one, <laughs> um, Collard kills a lot of people, but he's really nice. You know, I mean, he's a good guy. He just, he has to kill people. It's his job. But um, one of them, there's a... Uh,
1: he's very competent, too.
2: It, yeah, well, he gets good training, but yeah, he's, he's got a knack for it besides, and he can do other things too. Um, but uh, he gets in the sewer system and puts about 30 pounds of C4 underneath a um, a manhole in the street, primed for um, electric detonation. And he waits until the limo bringing the person who's on his hit list to cross it and blows the plate right through his ass. Um, he kills, uh, Suzanne Vestplot, um, I think he, he fakes her suicide, as I recall. Um, and if anyone who doesn't think that Suzanne Osthoff, German citizen, didn't conspire in her own kidnapping, so she could be ransomed for money to help the enemy in Iraq, they're idiots. She obviously uh, was a, a conspirator in her own kidnapping. And she was obviously helping the other side, so she obviously deserved to be hunted down and killed. In the book, someone much like her is.
1: In so what about Alex, though? Um, she's kind of turning away from her Taran Union roots as she is having to. She go. she is a
2: Saxon. She's not a Torn. She doesn't approve of the right,
1: Torn. Yeah. Um, she.
0: Got a
2: book. Thanks Olivia. Daughter I got another book okay <laughs> I buy a lot of books um, I don't organize them particularly well but I do buy them. Uh, yeah Alex is a fairly traditional um, she's lesbian but you know she doesn't for example believe in gay marriage um, and uh, and there are a surprising number of gays and lesbians who do not actually. Uh, For example, um, Lee Harris, a brilliant, brilliant writer, um, lives around Atlanta, and uh, he's much more concerned with preserving heterosexual marriage and advancing gay marriage. Um, Anyway, uh, Khalid has left his apartment and gone on a little bit of a recon um, to see what's happening once the Muslim rebellion that he's been providing arms for, or he's been smuggling arms for in the Torn union has kicked off. On the way back, he hears a gang rape. Uh, Not just a gang rape, it's an anal gang rape. This is, you know, painful sort of thing. Um, And he, you know, his first instincts are not my business, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys, but at heart, he's not a bad guy and he just can't walk past and let it go. So he kills the rapists, except for one. He loans um, Alex his his rifle so she can kill him. Uh, and then she's got uh, she can't go home she it, there's almost certainly because of who she is and how well known she is almost certainly uh, some group is trying to get her so he takes her to his place gives her his room he sleeps on the couch gives her some of his clothes because hers are kind of damaged um and once he discovers and he, he reports in what he's got there and fernandez says you know um, help her do anything necessary to get the gold, uh, the money that Carrera is demanding for Saxon soldiers to be returned to, to them, which they desperately need because they've got a rebellion going on. Um, and um, a couple of more people, I think Fernandez dispatches, I don't know, four or five, I don't remember, uh, but only two actually make it there because the country is just in such turmoil. And they find their way up to well, they, Fernandez tracks down where the person they need to find is probably hiding, and they go there to to get him out and use him to get the gold released to Balboa. And that's you know, it's it's a it's not exactly a rescue mission. Um, it, it's somewhere between a rescue and a kidnapping. Yeah. But there's,
1: there's a lot of sort of discussion of the ethics of, of who you kill and who you don't in such situations that I think is interesting because they're put to the test in that sort of that subplot.
2: Yes. Some. Yeah.
1: Of course, that's generally the way the whole book (laughs) is. Who are you going to kill? You could have seen the
2: original version. (laughs) The one of my, uh, it's still in this, uh, but in the, the original version, I went way out of my way to present juxtaposed moral incongruencies. And and one sticks in my mind, which does show up in, um, come and take them, I think. We send special forces out in sterile uniforms or sometimes in enemy uniforms. And we don't ever really think that if they get caught, that's a capital offense, you know? And we'd be terribly outraged if they were shot over it, but it's perfectly proper to shoot them if they're doing that, you know. Um, and the only difference is who's doing it, right? Juxtaposed moral incongruency.
1: What um, what about the technology uh, that's going on here? Is are we basically where we are now? Is that uh, there's some kind of badass tanks, for instance? I think which one. Uh, in in the book.
2: No, I know, but they're they're actually four, five.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the designations. But
2: what? Okay, there, there's Jaguars one and two, uh, two being a more product improved one. There's Puma, which is high end, but they don't have that many of those. I think under a hundred, or no, a little over a hundred.
1: Yeah. Well, um, knowing you, I know you've thought out, because you spent like fourteen days trying to figure out the MRE setup. Seventeen okay (laughs) I'm sure you've thought these things out so um what what is the technological state of of things and and maybe just as they um tanks and artillery
2: yeah it's it's uh very similar to now there's a few places where it's not or a few places where I, I put a lot of thought into some things um so, for example, if you go back to the 1500s, 1400s, and you look at British, German, and French helmets, and then you jump forward to 1917 and look at British, German, and French helmets, you'll find massive similarities. You know, that that British helmet, Brody helmet, um, you can find it on, um paintings of Agincourt in the 15th century. French helmet, the Adrian helmet, same thing. The, this German coal scuttle thing is, is echoed back um, to medieval times in Germany. It seems to me that certain cult, that cultures tend to repeat themselves militarily, um, to rhyme anyway, uh, and to do certain things the same. So for example, Carrera's standard regimental light artillery piece is uh, an, an 85 millimeter that he bought from Vulcan, from the Vulcan's surplus. Well, yeah, you know, the Russians used, a, here on earth, Russians used 85 millimeter guns, you know, um, and they have bought, so it's not impossible that they'd repeat it, and even fairly likely that they'd repeat the caliber later on, same with 122. Um, some things are different. I, one of the one of the things I tried to do with it was um, mix and match high tech, low tech, or medium tech, low tech for a better result. Uh, so, for example, well, I'll talk about the Condors a little bit. I was reading about stealth. Uh, in fact, I think I was reading Ben Rich's Skunk Works. Uh, and he was talking about bats in a in a saudi aircraft hangar uh uh s- circumference of bats in the same shape as an f-117 that had flown into it into the plane because their sonar just they didn't see what they couldn't see the plane with their sonars so they flew into it and broke their poor little skulls um i started thinking about that you know there's the the f-117 and the and the b2 Spirit are, uh, they were very mathematically intense uh, and very carefully manufactured. But randomness could give you much the same thing. And that's where the, the convex, concave chips in the foam for the Condor gliders, that's not something that exists on Earth. I tracked down uh, one of the world's foremost radar glories, a guy named Jacob Benzil, Van, Van to JPL Pasadena. You know, and I bounced the idea off of him, and it's, you know, yeah, he's South African. Yeah, uh, low performance aircraft. Yeah, that should work. Um, so it's not exactly the same tech. Um, it is similar tech, the, the Meg submarines, they kind of came from this, the same principle, except they actually are kind of carefully uh, figured. Um, and the fairing that is connected to the pressure hull with cones and pyramids should have much the same effect. I did not try to do the math, that's out of my skill set. But the principle of a, um, a sonar wave passing through the fairing, being scattered by the cones and pyramids, and then being diffused throughout the ocean enough that it's not readily detectable by the sonar sending unit um, you know, that's not earth tech. Something we could do, maybe, but it's not something that we've done. Uh, in fact, Ben Rich tried to talk the Navy into a stealth submarine, and the Navy didn't buy off on of it.
1: Another thing that um, that that you do a lot is um, it seems to me that this probably comes from your years uh, commanding infantry is uh, come up with more optimal organizations of uh, of the units, and you have specific names for them. And it seems like this is like this is what Tom Kratman would have done in the army if they would have let him fricking organize things right. Is that just me?
2: No, it's a, that, that's one of those how-to essays Yeah, uh, actually is, is organization. Um, and I, I mean, i direct anybody who's listening to this to go find that, read the essay on it, on organization and principles of organization. The U.S. Armed Forces, in fact, more, not just the U.S. Armed Forces, the world's armed forces, have one overriding principle of organization: maintain and expand, or expand, the maximum feasible number of general, or general officers and admirals. Yeah, that drives everything else. That's why we've got, for an army about, I think we've got as many generals as we had in World War II, or close to as many for an army that is a twentieth the size. That's why the, you know, I mean, and generals. Generals produce still more officers. That's the dog. Uh-huh. Hello, Stella. She's a good girl. What's uh, her name? Stella. Stella. Uh, <laughs> pit road girl. girl. Go ahead. Lie down. She's a pit girl. She's a really good dog. Um, loves people, loves cats, does not like other dogs. Uh, oh, no, where the hell was I before? Well, we I were
1: talking about organization, and we use a lot of Roman terms, and and so. Oh
2: well, yeah, that's uh, partly that's just to be, to sound strange. It's not necessary to have done that. They could have been regiments and, and uh, battalions rather than tercios and cohorts, divisions rather than legions. In some places, though, they're exactly the same. A corps is a corps, um, and it even looks something like a modern corps. Uh, a brigade is not exactly a brigade as we think of it but you know it's, it's more than a regiment it's less than a division um a platoon is a platoon but yeah once career makes the decision that they're going to call themselves a legion because mercenary organizations call themselves legions um he's the rest just kind of flows and when he wants to hide from uh from the people he's going what. One of the reasons officer corps get uh, ridiculously expanded in alliances is everybody tries to get a little extra rank for its people within an alliance. So a little more rank, a little more pull for that country in that alliance or that that army in that alliance. Uh, He wants to subvert that so he changes all the names of the ranks so that nobody knows who outranks what. Uh, And his people can basically ignore the people that they're working for, if he wants them to.
1: Yeah. All right, well, um, what, let's uh, talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Um.
2: Oh, I've got a bunch of crap going. Um, number one is, uh, it's partly done. Peter Grant and I uh, signed up with Tony to do, it's, it's really another Terra Nova spinoff uh, unto the last generation, which is a um, special forces soldier who sees his entire team. This is in, you know, on Terra Nova. He sees his entire team killed by lefty lawyers engaging in lawfare and decides that he has an obligation to, oh, and he was an orphan. So that was the first family he ever had. So he is um, going to hunt down and kill as many left-wing academics who have been pushing lawfare as he can before he's killed himself. It's unto the last generation because there's some collateral damage when he does that. Anyway, Peter had a heart attack, um, so he can't work on his part yet, so I'm kind of stymied. Uh, I've subcontracted volume sublet, I guess, volume four of the countdown series to Justin Watson, who did a story in um, the Nova anthology. Uh, and I haven't seen that he's partly done. I haven't seen the draft of what he's done yet, but we, we chat about it. And he's going in a pretty a cool and funny direction with criminal enterprise, which is going to be set mostly in Mexico. Um, the novella that I did, uh, Big Boys Don't Cry. I'm working with Vivian Raper, who um, Wrote The Long Darkwood Night again in the Terra universe. You know, maybe notice a pattern here. Um, and she's turning Big Boys Don't Cry into into a novel. Yeah, we're doing it, but the court martial of wrath of Flowerwood. I like that title myself. Um, wherein a bolo-like sentient creature is court
1: martial. from Earth. Oh, that's a cool idea, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. It is under the circumstances. I think it's justifiable homicide and so does everyone else. (laughs) Uh, That's because the, well, the Bolo universe is really dystopic. Yeah, it sounds uplifting and, but no, we treat Bolo's like absolute shit. So the original uh, Big Boys Don't Cry is really an attack on the Boloverse, uh, on on the, the ethos and logic and mythos of it. Not just the um, the fanfic, which is most of it is fanfic, and some of it's very good I mean, I find some of those stories moving me, which I guess means there's a little liberal in everyone. Um, but it's definitely an attack. And uh, I think the court martial will be will be pretty
1: good. Uh Bolo oh, a giant sentient tank.
2: Right. These are wrath It's much better named than Bolo. Then I just dumped a, an idea on um, on Lawrence Watson not Lawrence Boston, I'm sorry, Lawrence Riley. Just an idea I had uh, that I think would be good for him to do. He and ha- He's another one who had a story in, uh, in the Terra Nova anthology, um, the drug running story. Um, and that one is, I don't even know it's suitable for Bain, but it might be. Don't think alternate history, but forgotten history. Something that happened that mattered, but the record is lost and what that something is is a Christian Japanese daimyo upon hearing that Malta is besieged around 1667 or so sends 303 Christian samurai on a large junk to go to the Mediterranean and help I think
1: that kind of pretty fun. cool but it and they didn't get there
2: no, they're going to get there, but it'll be lost.
1: You know, they're never going
2: to get to the center of action. I think. They'll be all around because Malta wins. They don't need to go help. It's done. Uh, they, get they, there.
1: they take part in it. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then the, the big one, God, we briefed Tony on it. The last in-person Liberty Con, So that would be last year. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's a an alternate history series remember you want you nag me into doing alternate history okay well i am
1: <laughs> well i think you'd be perfect for it so yes
2: <laughs> uh starting with the romanov rescue and what flows from uh the monarchy winning the russian civil war it, it leads to a lot it, it, it's going to be at least 19 volumes <laughs> although we're only under contract for five and um It leads to some interesting, some things are not gonna change, right? Hitler's still gonna rise and take over Germany. It might be harder for him, but it's gonna happen. Um, We're still gonna end up at war with the Japanese. Uh, Russia, since it won't suffer the collectivization and what amounts to mass murder under Stalin is stronger than than um, Stalin's Russia, Soviet Union was, um, because it's a monarchy. Various breakaway states may not break away. For example, um, Estonia was pretty heavily Germanized, um, and the Germans of Estonia were um, they were very prominent in Russian army uh, before the Great War, and in fact, one of them. Um, German special forces in World War II was a group called the Brandenburgers. One of the Brandenburger officers was, in fact, from a, um, a Russian military family, from Estonia. Adrian Adrian Falken something or other. Um, so it's, you know, and politics makes strange bedf- bedfellows. We're going to be lied with Ho Chi Minh.
1: Well, that kind of makes a sort of sense, but I like the, uh, all right. So, uh, the, the czar never falls or the czar, uh, beats, beats the, uh, the bullshoots back and we get a 20th century with a Russian monarchy in the mix and that changes things in, in very interesting ways. Is that the,
2: I, I, I'm going to give a spoiler. The czar is not going to survive the experience. One of his daughters. He's
1: okay. Gonna- okay. Well, that's uh, even better. <laughs>
2: I think so. She's very beautiful too. Uh, oh, and one other thing that, uh, I mean, it's, I've had it for a while. Tony's had it for a while, but it's not really something that Bane does is a, a graphic novel that I scripted out. And I've never found the artist for it. And I think Tony still looks it, into it every now and again. Um,
1: one day we'll do graphic novels when we can justify, <laughs> we, we keep thinking about it.
2: Yeah. I, I just, i is accurately. not right yet yeah i just sent someone to contact tony um who's already got funding to do a graphic novel uh that sounds kind of cool and is just looking for a distributor, so a uh, paper distributor so that may work out you know and that that would be cool too
1: yeah i'm sure i'll hear about it tony being tony Weisskopf, my boss yeah. and the uh, publisher at bain so, well anything else on uh days of burning days of wrath that uh, we might want to talk about? I
2: think it's kind of fun, you know, and I, I think I closed up all the important, finished off all the important
1: things. I guess, I mean, that is important in that this is a, I think you can read it as a standalone also, and it's um, it, it's a culminating volume in the series. It's, it's something that if you have been following Carrera, you need to get this book.
2: Oh, you'll be terribly disappointed with the rest for the rest of your life, yes.
1: That's right. So, and uh, a lot of things come out, you know, like uh, you know, what's gonna happen to Carrera? Um, what's gonna happen to his marriage? What about his son? Um, all the all the happen things. to his marriage
2: when this dead ringer for his ex wife shows up.
1: Yeah, there is that. <laughs> There's that as well. You know, is this guy that you've put through this insane uh experience in his life gonna get a happy ending or not so um we you don't tell us <laughs> i no. think we know that you're not going to give him a complete happy ending i don't
2: know I, I don't do completely happy endings
1: yeah yeah so um but but it's it's a it, in a way it's kind of the um uncompromising honor which was sort of an honor verse big uh culminating book uh, of the career verse and in, in the way that i think of it it's it's a book you you, you need to read
2: I certainly think they need to read it, yes. yes.
1: um, Well, Tom Crapman, the book is um, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman, and it is now at Booksellers Everywhere. Tom, thanks so much for uh, talking to us about uh, this novel.
2: Very happy to do so, and thanks for having me.
1: That was part two of a two part interview with Tom Kratman. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor.
0: Much larger consequences when the ship returns to normal space and some error is inevitable. The hyperlog which keeps track of a starship's location in hyper, much the way ancient inertial navigation systems kept track of pre-space submarine submerged positions, has to calibrate after any translation into hyperspace. And that calibration depends on a series of complex comparisons between the vessel's actual energy readings and those projected by a perfect model run over a period of time. There is not enough time for the hyperlog to complete its comparisons in a microjump. Depending upon the jump's duration, the hyperlog may be able to refine its accuracy. It can never achieve anything like complete accuracy. And what creates problems for a single ship tends to create a lot more of them when multiple ships execute a microjump together. Even when a single ship runs the master clock for the jump and every ship initiates its downward translation simultaneously, there's some variance when they actually hit the alpha wall between hyper and normal space. Crossing the wall is akin to encountering atmospheric turbulence in an aircraft, and the wall fluctuates as the result of a complex interaction with any local in-space gravity wells or wormholes. The degree to which that fluctuation can be adjusted for depends upon how well the astrogation computers have analyzed it, and that, too, is a factor of how long they've had for the analysis. Bearing all those factors in mind, Merchant captains generally refuse to put wear on their alpha nodes and hypergenerators for anything less than a half light hour. Their schedules are seldom so time critical as to make shorter microjumps worth the trouble, the effort, and the uncertainty. Naval astrogators, on the other hand, are specifically trained to make those shorter microjumps, although things can get tricky even for them if the total distance is much less than, say, three light minutes. Task Force 1027's microjump was only twenty-three light seconds, however, and Isidore Hampton had the disruptive influence of the terminus itself to contend with as well. Inevitably, there was going to be a certain sloppiness about it. Hyperfootprints! Thomas Wozniak announced 4.5 minutes after 30 Solarian battlecruisers, 12 light cruisers, and 20 destroyers had vanished from Crewron 912's sensors. Many footprints! He continued studying the data. The nearest is 700,000 kilometers. The terminus' approaches were a storm of blue lightning flashing against the Stygian dark as 62 starships returned to normal space. Under the circumstances, it was a tight formation, Jane Isatalo thought, as the hyperfootprints flared upon SLNS Foudroyant's master plot. Tight, however, was a relative term, and her two task groups were still scattered over an enormous volume. One division of Nevada's from TG 1027.2's back crew Ron 615 was over a million kilometers from the rest of its squadron. That was the worst dispersal, however, and she smiled fiercely as she saw how tight Isidore Hampton's astrogation had actually been. He had indeed hit very close on the distance. If four of her battlecruisers were 1.6 million kilometers from the Mantis, eight more were barely beyond energy weapon range. Flight time for a javelin at 700,000 kilometers would be 39 seconds. Well, within the cycle time on a heavy cruiser's hypergenerator, and the communications lag would be only 2.3 seconds. At that range, all the ECM in the universe wouldn't save the Mantis. She would have preferred energy range, but she'd settle for what she had. Fire plan Delta, she snapped. Delta relied solely on her ship's internal launchers because there wasn't time to redeploy the extended chains of huskies and missile pods, which had been drawn in close enough for the battlecruisers hyper translation fields to extend around them. Still, the eight Nevadas, including Fujoyant, closest to the Mantis, built 224 missiles two seconds after she'd given the order. Not bad astrogation, Commodore Lessom observed as the master plot stabilized. Those bastards at 038 did especially well he twitched his head at the closely grouped clump of hyper footprints off Klaus Fleming's starboard quarter. The Solarians weren't moving relative to his command. A ship translating out of hyper shed over 90% of its velocity in transit energy bleed off, and they hadn't been moving especially fast through hyper even before they translated back down. But those eight ships had maintained an extremely tight formation. In fact, he doubted very many Manticoran squadrons could have matched their performance. Better than I expected, sir, Commander Tory admitted. Nobody ever said the Solis weren't competent spacers, Lesson pointed out. We tend to forget that because- Missile launch, Wozniak said. 200 plus inbound from 038163 at 935.3 kps squared. They look like javelins, sir. Time of flight, 39.2 seconds. Acknowledged, Lesson replied, never looking away from the plot. As I was saying, he resumed calmly, we tend to forget that, because of how one-sided the actual fighting's been so far. But they're not going to keep their heads inserted into their anal orifices on that front forever, Lester. And when they get them extracted, they're still going to be competent in all those other areas. Point, sir, Tory said. Lesson turned his head to smile at him, then glanced at Lieutenant Commander Kivlikon. The astrogator's expression was intense as he watched his console, but there was remarkably little concern on Class Fleming's bridge as the missiles accelerated towards her, and then. Damn! Admiral Isatalo said as the entire Manticoran squadron disappeared into Hyper 14 seconds after her missiles had launched. A boarding salvo, Rear Admiral Rosiak said, and transmitted the destruct code to the javelins which had been hurtling towards their foes. They self-destructed a second later, and Isatalo grimaced. I hate it when the other side has a brain, she said. All due respect, ma'am, it didn't take a whole lot of brain to figure our options, Ramalus pointed out. Like you said, Two-Step was really our only chance to get into effective range before they bugged out anyway. And I believe you were also the one who said only a drooling idiot would let us get away with it. It was worth trying but they have to have had their generators ready to cycle the instant they saw us go into hyper. I know, I know, Isatalo snorted. I guess I'm mostly pissed off at myself for letting them suck me into firing those missiles. Like you say, they had to have known when we'd be turning up, and they could have hypered out four damn minutes before we translated back down. The only reason they didn't was because they wanted to sit here long enough to let me fire at them. It was a little cheeky of them. But given the timing, we'd have had to hit end space less than 90,000 kilometers out to catch them with a missile launch. And at that range, we'd have been ripping them apart with energy fire and damn the missiles. But what were the chances even Isidore could put us that close? She shook her head. No, the Mantis did that on purpose. And they did it to make the point that they could do it. Beg your pardon, mem, Romalis's eyebrows furrowed. We could have fired ten times that many birds without making a hole in our internal magazines, much less what Quigley's got in the support ships. I think we can assume they're smart enough to figure that out too. So they damned well didn't expect that convincing us to waste missiles chasing them into hyper was going to affect our combat readiness in any way. No, those people only waited because they were thumbing their noses at us before they ran away. Maybe so, Romalis acknowledged after a moment. But that could end up costing them, especially if they really can't fire salvos bigger than the one they already threw at us, ma'am. We're on top of the Terminus now, not them.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And the remains of the day and the ashes of 10,000 crumpled up hollow men who died with a whimper, but make great compost for tomatoes. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Tom Kratman, author of Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.